Well, I'm Tim Land, and uh, I'm the old geezer in the uh, Letter Streets Covenant Church. Um, and I'm, I feel very honored and pleased that Chris asked me to uh, fill in for him. I, I can understand why he would want somebody else to preach after driving back from Portland uh, five hours or whatever. I'm sure it was exhausting. But uh, to preach God's Word is a, a wonderful privilege, but it's also an awesome responsibility. And I would like to begin with a word of prayer if you'd join me. God, we, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the fact that the Bible is not just a, a book of old religious writings, but it's uh, your word to us. It's alive and it's well. Um, it's relevant for who we are and uh, the kind of world in which we live, even though it was written so long ago by so many different people, yet we believe that you were involved in it in such a way that we can trust that it's your word to us. So we, we approach it and open it that, with that knowledge and uh, with the expectation that you're always speaking to us and um, the issue really is whether we're able to hear. And, and so by, by your grace, God, help us listen to you with our hearts today and uh, hear what you have to say and then act on it. I pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Well, a long time ago, uh, 1977, in an alternative reality, uh, California, I, uh, I got ordained to the uh, ministry of Word and Sacrament in the Presbyterian Church. And at my ordination service, uh, the sermon was preached by a good friend and mentor, Reverend Roberta Hestinus. And it was a God thing that I asked Roberta to preach the sermon in that service because uh, her message had a huge impact on me and my ministry for, well, for years to come, including up to the present. The text that she preached from that day uh, was from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just the first five verses. And let me read these verses. This is the Apostle Paul writing to the church in, in Corinth. When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. That was her text. And she just hammered away that, Tim, she said, when you go to Bellingham, Washington to become a pastor, preach Jesus and Jesus alone and Him crucified. That's what Paul did in Corinth. That's what you need to do. And that's what I did. Jesus. Only Jesus. In fact, I preached Jesus so much uh, when I hit the track running at Birchwood that I had actually people in the congregation pull me aside and say, Come in, would you let up on the Jesus stuff a little bit? And, and I would, of course, just say, of course I won't. I let up on that. That's why I, I'm in this ministry. But Jesus is an amazing person. For a lot of people, unfortunately, he's little more than an expletive. His name. For, other, for others, he's one of the most misunderstood and underappreciated religious leaders that has ever lived. 
The Jewish king Herod wanted Jesus, just before his crucifixion, he wanted him to uh, entertain Herod by doing some tricks, miracles. And yet, Herod had no intention of becoming one of his followers. John the Baptist, who probably knew Jesus as well as anybody prior to the onset of Jesus' uh, public ministry, outside his family, immediate family, John wondered about Jesus, uh, whether he was the one that uh, God had promised or should they look elsewhere. And today, for some, Jesus is little more than a ticket out of problems. Just as people line up all the different resources available to them in life, they might put Jesus on that, on that uh, shelf and just you know, pull him out when they need him. Many regard him as one of the great teachers of all time who pay no attention to his teaching, but they nevertheless go, oh yeah, he was a great teacher. Um, there are some who regard him as a misguided fool who got himself killed. And then there are some of us, and there have been some of us for 2,000 years, who in our best moments know him to be the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords before whom every knee should bow, and someday will. His name is Jesus. And whether you love him or hate him, whether you follow him or ignore him, I believe that for 2,000 years he remains, after 2,000 years, he remains the most intriguing person who's ever lived. The stories about Jesus that we read in the Bible show us that people were generally curious about him. He drew crowds wherever he went. He was a fascinating man, even to those who eventually decided they wanted nothing to do with him. So he was very popular, but even so, he proved to be a tough package to accept in many ways. And he still does. When he healed people, and when he walked on water, and when he turned water into wine, and things like that, his overall poll numbers were pretty high. But when he made noises about somehow or other being divine, being the Son of God, being God himself, then his poll numbers took a dive, and they went south pretty quick when people would hear that. Men like King Herod, the Roman governor Pilate, they heard him make claims of divinity and dismissed him as a crackpot, albeit a dangerous crackpot for them. And then, of course, he was especially a stumbling block to the religious professionals of his day, the heavy-hitting religious guys, the ministerial group, if you would. Uh, in Chris's sermon series, he's already introduced us to some of this conflict that Jesus had with him because it, it shows up in John as early as chapter 2. Um, and we'll see as, as Chris takes us through the rest of John, there's, there's running skirmishes between Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees, the, the religious uh, professionals and religious leaders. You see, they heard his claims about uh, being God and they concluded not that he was mentally ill but that he was evil, that he was an agent of the devil. They were convinced of that. In fact, it was his claim to deity, to being divine, 
that really proved in the minds of those religious guys to be the unforgivable sin, a capital crime that deserved capital punishment. Conflict with the religious leaders in chapter 8 of John's Gospel really reaches sort of to the heights. It's just loaded in that chapter. So I want to read a portion of chapter 8 of John's Gospel starting at verse 48. And just let me just say before I start reading that Jesus and the scribes and the Pharisees have been going at it for quite an earlier part of the chapter. And so we're, we're, we're sort of landing in the middle of a, an argument, if you will. But starting at verse 48, the Jews answered him, aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan? And you can remember from last week, that would be the ultimate put down that they could give him. Aren't we right in saying that you're a Samaritan and demon possessed? I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. I'm not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it and he's the judge. I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. At this, the Jews exclaimed, now we know that you're demon possessed. Abraham died, so did the prophets, and yet you say if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But he really is working these guys, uh, you know, how to win friends and influence people with these, right? Talking to them this way. I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You're not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him. And you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this, they picked up stones to stone him. But Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Jesus often got into um, confrontations with the scribes and the Pharisees. Um, in our passage, the passage I just read, John refers to them as the Jews. And that, that requires a little bit of explanation, because after all, Jesus was a Jew himself. So when, in, in what we just read, when John refers to the Jews, obviously he's not talking about all Jews. He's, talking about, he's using the term in a specified way, referring to the scribes and the Pharisees. The experts, the religious experts, if you will. And what we have there in chapter 8 is some of the most animated, nose-to-nose confrontation that Jesus had with any of his adversaries during his public ministry. The scribes, depending on your uh, translation of your Bible that you use, might be called the lawyers or sometimes teachers of the law. Who the scribes were, they were professional. They were professional scholars in the Bible. They knew their Bible. In fact, if you were going to play a, a game of, of Bible trivia, you would want a scribe on your team. Because if you did, you, you would, your team would win. That's, I mean, they knew their Bibles very, very well. So they're pros. 
The Pharisees, on the other hand, they're not, they're lay guys, uh, not professionals, but they're very powerful men, very wise, very learned, and they're, they're members of this political religious party called Pharisees within the Jew, Jewish community. And both the Pharisees and the scribes were men who were very concerned, very sincerely concerned, at the, uh, in, in, they wanted the law of God to be recognized, to be honored and obeyed. And so they became what are known as hedge builders. Hedge building is, if you, here's a law of God, a certain commandment. And in order to make sure that that law gets honored and obeyed, then you build hedges around it. You build other laws that will ensure that this, this law gets obeyed. Let me give you an example. Let's say that instead of ten commandments, there were eleven. And the eleventh commandment was, Thou shalt not be late for work or school in the morning. That's the law of God. That's a law that everybody has to obey. The scribes and the Pharisees, particularly the Pharisees, were men who, in order to ensure that that law did not get broken, they decided, then everybody needs an additional law, and it would be, thou shalt own an alarm clock. But, so, so we've, now we've built a little hedge around the law. If we can get everybody to own an alarm clock, then they won't be late for work or school. But the scribes and the Pharisees are not fools. They know what human nature is. They know just, just the fact that you own an alarm clock doesn't mean you'll use it. So they build another hedge around that. Not only do you have to have an alarm clock, thou shalt set the alarm clock. Now you've got two hedges around God's law. But you know what happens, even if you set the alarm, it goes off, a lot of people reach over and hit that snooze button, go back to sleep. So there's no guarantee that the law of God is going to be honored and obeyed. And so you build another hedge. And it says, Thou shalt have an alarm clock, thou shalt set the alarm clock, and thou shalt put the alarm clock on the other side of the room on the dresser. <laughs> you see what they've done? They've built these, and that's what they did with God's law. A, a ridiculous example of this uh, that we'll see later, I'm sure, and in, in Chris is going to deal with this in chapter 9 of John's, uh, John's Gospel. Jesus ends up healing a blind man by putting mud on his eyes. And it's on the Sabbath. And the way Jesus makes the mud is he spits on the, the ground, mixes the spittle with the, the dust, and, and produces that. Well, the scribes and the Pharisees get all over him for this. He's, he's a terrible guy because he's worked on the Sabbath. They had a rule that if you're walking along on the Sabbath and you spit on a rock, that's okay. But if you spit on the dirt, that's labor because the minute the spit hits the dirt, it makes mud. And therefore you've made mud, you've labored, and you've violated the Sabbath. But if you spit on the rock, it's okay. Is that absurd? Of course it's absurd. Let's hear, yeah, that's absurd. You know? Yeah. Okay. So that's what, that's what Jesus is up against here. This kind of hedge building around God's law. And he knows, he sees it for what it is. It's ridiculous. Now, having said that, I want to also say 
that these, are, these scribes and Pharisees are sincere men who have gotten so far into the forest they don't see the trees anymore. They're not evil men. They're not stupid men. They're just men who have become so distracted by their hedges that they've built that they unwittingly, unwittingly they've become blind to God and God's truth. And I also have to another caveat, and that is we can't say all of them were that way. There were exceptions. We've already met one, Nicodemus, in chapter 3. So, but the vast majority of these guys were after Jesus. They were, they were after, you know, at his throat. And eventually they'll get him from a human point of view. They wanted Jesus to, to define himself according to their own preconceived views and standards. And we do the same thing. We do the same thing particularly if we regard Jesus as a resource. And, and little more than a resource. And Jesus would never allow himself to be defined by others. And he would never back down and say he was someone other than who he was. And so his questioners, they just got increasingly exasperated with him. And finally, they blurt out in that passage we read, Who do you think you are? You can just hear the emotion in, their, in, in the words. Who do you think they are? That's, that's actually it's a wonderful question. You know, who, who did Jesus think he was? More importantly, who is he? Is he just a religious leader who's been dead for, you know, for 2,000 years? Jesus tried to explain to these men, rationally explain to them, but they couldn't hear him. There was too much emotional energy, too much baggage that they were bringing to this confrontation. And so finally he has to resort to a sort of a direct blast, if you will. Now, at that moment, you know, Jesus could have pulled a Jack Nicholson uh, the way Jack, you know, did on Tom Cruise in the movie An Officer and a Gentleman. And for those of you who never saw the movie, I apologize, but for those of you who did, you remember the court-martial scene where Cruise is going after Nicholson and he, kept, he keeps hammering him and he, and he says, I, I, I demand that you tell the truth. And Nicholson gives him that great line, you can't handle the truth, right? That's what Jesus, Jesus could have taken that kind of an attitude with these guys, but he didn't. Thank God, you know, Jesus is no Jack Nicholson. He, he just assertively and lovingly goes after these guys. And now let me read just a little bit of that again. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. This is Jesus speaking. He saw it and was glad. Wait a minute, they say. You're not 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered. Before Abraham was born, I am. That statement by Jesus, before Abraham was born, I am. It may be poor grammar, but it's great theology. If you write a sentence like that in an English composition class in school, you're likely to get uh, a poor grade. But if you spoke that sentence to scribes and Pharisees 2,000 years ago, you don't just get a bad grade, you're likely to get yourself killed. And Jesus did. Before Abraham was born, I am, would have been, for those who heard him say it, the most outrageous thing they could have ever heard anybody say. To better appreciate what I just said, let's go back 1,500 years before Christ to an amazing story of Moses meeting up with God out in the desert, in the Sinai desert, at a, a burning bush. Speaking from the bush, God gives Moses this commission 
He says, I want you to go back to Egypt from, from where Moses has been gone for 40 years. I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to lead my people who are in captivity by the Egyptians out of, of Egyptian slavery. At this commission, Moses balks. He balks in a big way. He doesn't want to go. He's afraid to go. He's, he's an 80-year-old man. And besides that, there's a murder warrant waiting for him in Egypt. And he knows it. There's all, he has a, an impressive list of reasons why he shouldn't be getting this commission from God. But in the middle of this, and, uh, in, in Exodus chapter 3, beginning at verse 11, we pick this story up. Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? Which translates, God, you, you're making a terrible mistake here. Verse 12, And God said, I will be with you, and this will be the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Moses said to God, Well, suppose I do go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, Well, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? And I'm sure when Moses said that, I bet he was thinking, I got you now, God, right? Because you never give your name to anybody. God, God said to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. That, that, that Hebrew there that's translated I am, it gets transliterated into English letters Y-H-W-H. And then it be, most often it's trans, trans, or pronounced Yahweh. And, and then Yahweh got corrupted over the years into Jehovah. Don't ask me how that happened, but it did. Uh, but it's God's name. Uh, I am who I am. It's a sort of a, you know, enigmatic name. Uh, mysterious. Uh, it can mean also, it can be also translated, I will be who I will be. Um, but it's God's way of saying that, look, I'm God. I'm the only God. I'm totally other. I'm not dependent on anybody or any, anything. And I think it's, it's God's way of saying that He is so capital G, capital O, capital D, God, that any human name would be inadequate. And yet He chooses to identify Himself with this name, Yahweh. And for Jews, Orthodox Jews, this name was hyper-sacred. Lest it be pronounced and thus blasphemed, uh, they you would usually render it in, in, in Jewish writings with the word Adonai, which means Lord. There are stories that are told, and I believe them, that certain Jewish scribes, when they were cop making a copy of, uh, of, the, of the, what we would call the Old Testament, and they would come to this word, the, the holy name, they would stop, they would go and bathe, put on fresh clothes, get a new pen, and then come back and write the name. That's how, that's how they revered the holy name of God. And so here we have Jesus applying that sacred name to none other than himself. So, the question that those men in their exasperation ask, who in the world do you think you are? <laughs> well, the answer is, he thought he was God. And he was. He thought he was God. Now, how important is it? If Jesus wasn't and isn't God, does it really matter that much? 
Is Christianity any the less if Jesus was just a man, albeit a you know a great man? Well, I, I would say absolutely, absolutely yes. For many good reasons. Let's look at just one of them. It's right here in this text that we read. In chapter, in verse, in chapter 8, verse 51, Jesus says this, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Can, can any of you say that to me? Can I say that to you? Of course not. Humans can't say things like that to each other. Jesus says it. If, any, if I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Who has control over death? I don't. You don't. No one except the one who gives life. You know, crooks and loons can say things like that. But they can't. They can't control. You know, they can claim to control death, but they can't. You know, I've heard people say, well, you know, Jesus never really claimed to be God. He never really claimed to be the Son of God. That was just something early Christians made up and it stuck. Well, I don't know what Bible they're reading. Usually I'm pretty sure they're not reading the Bible when the people make those statements. Of course he claimed to be God. He, he did it over and over and over again in a variety of different ways. So what is the takeaway? Well, for starters, I would say don't trifle with God. Make your pursuit of Him the most important thing you do. He is the great I Am. If you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure whether you are or not, I would invite you to consider this man who claims to be God. Consider whether he is a crackpot, or a crook, or God. It seems like there's just those three choices. And if you decide that he might be God, after all, then you can't just walk away from him. You've got to deal with him. It's just logic. If you are a Christian, then I urge you to take another good look at Jesus. If there's any hint of undue familiarity or mundaneness in your relationship with him, then I urge you to get him out of your hip pocket, take out steel wool, and, and you know, scrub off any words that you've attached to him, like good buddy uh, or uh, pal. You know, Is Jesus your friend? Of course he's your friend. He said so. But he's not your buddy. Okay? There's a big difference. He is, he is the great I am, the Lord God Jehovah himself. He's, he makes that claim. We either accept that and embrace it, or we write him off. See, if we lose this I amness of God, or this I amness of Jesus, then we run the danger of ending up with a God who is too small for our lives. You know, the hyper Calvinists of the 17th and 18th centuries were criticized, in some cases uh, just, justly, for. Their heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. And where it ended up for a lot of them was that God was so, so powerful, so holy, so distant, that it made it difficult for people to feel like they connect, could connect with him. If Jesus is for me primarily just though a super good or a super you know, powerful guy, here's what can happen. Sooner or later, something's going to happen in my life that is so awful, so traumatic, that I may feel like God let me down. That he was either not as good as I'd been told he was, or that he's not as strong and able. When we get to heaven, heaven the gates of heaven, I'm not sure God's going to be overly concerned with um, hearing from us about how many Bible studies we attended, or how many verses we memorized, or, or anything like that. You know, <clears throat> But he's definitely going to ask us, how did we love those whom he loves? 
How did we care for the poor, the hurting, the vulnerable? What did we do about injustice? And most importantly, how did we love his son? How did we honor him with our lives as well as our lips? How did we serve him? Did we hold him high? Yahweh, the great God Jehovah, in the form of, of a human, Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, that is, that is a huge miracle to make that claim that the Bible does. And the miracle in the miracle, the miracle that's buried in the miracle there, is that this great I Am, the Lord God Jehovah, maker of heaven and earth, this awesome God, this same God wants to have dinner with you and me. Like right now, Chris.